Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Prezanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Episode 7 of the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about pediatrics, uh, and we're bringing a I – would, I would call you an expert, but I don't know if you like the word expert um, – an expert on to discuss this, and that would be Derek Miles. Derek is currently the advanced clinical specialist in orthopedics and sports for Stanford's Children's Hospital. And prior to that, he practiced at the University of Florida after completing an orthopedic residency at UF. He holds a DPT from the University of Florida, as well as a BS in biochemistry from Clemson University. He's a member of the Barbell Medicine team and advocates for physical activity participation with a special interest in the youth population. So Derek, I've known you for a couple years now, uh, and I know we've tried to kind of like link up and do a podcast in the past, but I'm just really pumped that you're able to come on today. I'm glad I got to join you, man. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about just pediatric sports participation, um, and I think that this is something Danielle and I talk about pretty regularly, as far as the populations that we tend to see in the performing arts are very much heavy toward the youth, right? Like start, start them young. Uh, in the gymnastics world, when we talked to Christina, she was saying that, you know, the peak gymnastics age is about 16. And, you know, when you're in middle school, you have to start thinking about, am I going to have a college scholarship? Am I going to be a professional gymnast? So it's just something that's very relevant to the populations that um, we think need a little bit more access to education on these subjects. So. Yeah, there's certainly a, a lot of facets that go into play, especially when you're talking about early youth specialization or even like physical activity participation. And in regards to especially the performing arts, it, it's certainly an interesting paradigm just because performing arts and gymnastics do tend to kind of go together in that it selects for a younger start and earlier specialization out of it. And if you really look in the research, there tends to be these caveats that come out all the time um, in regards to how 
early and how often you should participate. The current recommendations that you'll hear are you shouldn't be doing more hours of a sport than you are years old. So a 12 year old shouldn't be doing more than 12 hours of participation. Um, you shouldn't be participating in only one sport. And if you are for more than eight months a year, you are at an increased risk of injury. And the problem is sometimes that really gets conflated into you're going to get injured, but it, it still is always multifactorial and there's a lot of factors that go into it. But if you look at those recommendations in general, there tends to always be this little sidebar that is uh, except for gymnastics and except for the performing arts. And it does seem in those two that there is a predisposition for specialization in order for long-term success a little bit earlier. And that's not inherently bad by any stretch of the imagination, but it still really does make the case that kids need to be participating in things developing. And I really like the or what the literature is calling it now, it's developing physical literacy. And we talk about in the performing arts, it is very pattern oriented and it is like, how good can I be at this very narrow pattern of movements? And, and I understand like very narrow, there is a wide array, but you're typically practicing one set at a time. And most of being, or most of developing athletic qualities is developing a broad base of skills. And the conversation I end up having, especially with the performing arts to a lot of my parents or with a lot of the parents I see in clinic, isn't that there is a specific set of exercises that's going to be protective for your child. They just really need to find something that they enjoy doing that isn't dance. And, you know, working with barbell medicine, and if you really look at the literature, there is good evidence that resistance training can fill that void. And I would highly advocate for that being a part of it. But it's not a magic bullet. Like if you're doing some other things to develop some broad physical skills, I would argue that could be just as good as ever touching a big weight. It's interesting because we, when we talk with Christina, she said one of the things she does with her gymnastics team is that every once in a while they just go play kickball. And her reasoning is like, you would be surprised how many young gymnasts have not developed that physical literacy and they don't know how to do things like throw and catch a ball. Yep. And, and that really gets it kind of the point out of it. And it's part of why developing some panacea of a youth training program is difficult because there does need to be some just randomness in there. And it's not that there needs to be, you know, we need 30 reps of throwing a baseball at 45 feet every other day. It's you need to go out and like, get a nerf ball and play with that just because it makes you learn different ways of adapting to whatever like constraints you're going to put on the game and if you look at a, a lot of the like anecdotal research that you'll hear a lot of times there is some evidence that says like by and large like lower ses kids tend to develop a little bit broader of a physical literacy spectrum and part of my hypothesis on why this is is we've gotten to the point now where you have 12 year olds playing on a perfectly manicured field in who have referees and you know top of the line equipment and that's awesome but then you're learning in a very sterile environment and i mean if you want to learn how to be light on your feet go play in a field with a bunch of rocks on it i guarantee you you're you're going to step a little bit lighter and there is something to be said for learning how to do things outside of the best possible situation. 
it's the great philosopher Mike Tyson, the everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And, you know, if you learn on this sterile environment the whole time and then you have to go perform with some shoddy equipment, then, like, are you still going to be adaptable to that? And it's developing that really broad foundation of exercises. And, and Jake, I know for you in particular, like, you, we've all in the barbell world seen the guy who trains on, like, Alico with, uh, like, perfectly calibrated plates and now they're on a old Ohio power bar that's worn in and they're complaining because their numbers are down. Like, well, dude, it weights weight. Like you've just been playing with something really fancy the whole time. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, running a cycle with a safety squat bar or something else, or going from like a monolith to having to walk a squat out, right? You get like these very specified, like technical skills, like in that groove, and then when you try to apply it to something else, sometimes it, it it's not that it doesn't carry over, but it's it's a different, there's more randomness to it, more chaos. And so it makes it a little bit harder to maybe express that skill exactly the same way. Um, does that make, does that, does that an analogy make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's even interesting, and Daniel, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, because even preparing for this, it's the more I reflect on it, the more I think even the choice of word of recital is interesting just because it really is and alludes to like being able to do exactly what you should be doing. And it's almost like if if you were trying to recite something in poetry, you're going to say it the exact way that the author wanted you to do it And in dance or, or the performing arts like you're learning the way it's supposed to be done. But a lot of what ends up being predicated on athletic skill is being able to do things that no other person can do. So, and you learn that through some variability along the way. I think that's an interesting point. I've never thought about the word recital. Um, I think in dance, it's very regimented, right? It's a progressive increase in skill at each age. Um, and you have to complete those skills before you move on to the next level um, of competition or dance or gymnastics, um, what have you. But you are kind of taught to do exactly what the instructor does and not have individuality that goes into it until you make it to like the high school ages and the collegiate professional level where you can be a soloist, you can act on your own and you don't have to be part of a core of dancers who all have to look the same, right? Your bodies have to look the same, the angle of your head, the angle of your arm, you all have to look the same for the piece of choreography to look, air quotes, beautiful, right? If someone falls out of line, then that breaks the whole aesthetic component of the dance. And I think that's why they really push you to be like everyone else for the majority of your training. And I fully understand that it is the art is supposed to be performed. And, you know, but if we kind of take that into the other side of it and like if we only taught one way to cut to a cornerback or only one way to dribble, like that's odds are like basketball is the perfect analogy. If you can only dribble with your right hand, you're pretty easy to defend. And 
like it is being able to add some of that variability into the system. And this is why, like, I, I have zero problem if a kid and their parent have an informed decision about participating in some performing arts. But I do think everything in the literature right now would advocate that there needs to be something else in there. And, and that something isn't defined, but working on some fundamental literacy skills or physical literacy skills, I, I think is imperative to not getting some of these overuse injuries that tend to be indicative of it. And we're still kind of taking a narrow view out of this just because it's easy to talk just about like the physiological complaints that we get for like knee pain and dance, but the low hanging fruit still in, like involves conversations around, are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting adequate nutrition? And if we're not addressing those two things, then it doesn't matter how much we properly load a tendon. We're probably still not really operating in the athlete's best interest to get them over what they need to do. Uh, when do you think, with all the expertise that you have in this area, when is the right time for these kids to begin you know, weight training or resistance training? Because I get that question all the time especially with dancers who don't want to bulk up, right? That's the fear that all of them have. And I, I know all of us could talk about that for days and days, but that is a true fear that they have in their mind. And I was told that all the way through my career, like don't lift weights. You will bulk up. It'll mess up everything like the aesthetic component. Um, so when do you think a good time for them to start implement implementing the weight training is well, resistance training is pretty analogous to what you said about the progressions for dance if done properly in that like you can start in if you look at the literature the what's referred to as the uh, optimum window of trainability tends to be right around middle school age but even then you know gaining technical proficiency before that will set you up for long-term success and i've seen some competitions now uh for the youth like under 10 where it's not about how much weight you can move you're judged almost like you would be on gymnastics in that it's like how good did you perform the movement and granted there's some subjectivity out of it but you're certainly like drilling in some more what we consider ideal movement patterns and if you spent two years with a you know training bar on your back getting a perfect squat by the time i want to start putting some weight on you you've nailed the technique out of it but the problem is where our entry point is in best case scenario tends to be when the athlete is a freshman in high school and even then you're probably talking less than 20 percent of the time are they getting anything that would really be deemed a, a true resistance training program and once again there isn't a right or wrong answer to this but there does tend to be this dogma against putting heavy load through kids and heavy is still relative to what they can adapt to. And depending on how strong you are or, or what adaptation and training history you have, you may take off. And, you know, I've had multiple kids in their teens come in with no training and by the end of a surgical protocol, so, you know, four to six months, well above body weight on a back squat. And, you know, we started with a training bar and worked into it from there. And it is the ultimate question comes down to this, like, where is the entry point? And you said something a second ago that like, I always find interesting when discussing that entry point. You said uh, dance is typically taught according to like your age-specific recommendations. Well, you know, if you started dancing when you're 16, you're not going to treat me like a 16-year-old. You're probably going to treat me like an 8-year-old. 
And so it's not necessarily your age, it's your training age within that sport. And I think sometimes that gets lost. And then what happens a lot of times is we have these different entry points into resistance training to where I think it becomes fearful sometimes because you get a kid who has no training whatsoever and they're around a kid who's been doing it for six years and is already squatting, you know, 225, 245. And they're looking at that kid like, well, I'm never going to get there. And they end up overshooting out of the beginning because there wasn't some good guidance along the way. And the other problem we have, you know, in today's social media side of it is, you know, there is no squat lighter than 135 pounds. You know, that's kind of where where in the the society's mind we begin. And we forget that we have these training bars. It's fine to start with a goblet squat. It's not so important as to how much weight you have when you start. It's more imperative that you start. And I think I think kind of like further, at least within the performing arts world, like that entry point becomes harder and harder because we have a lot of these stigmas. And when we look at, you know, we've kind of touched on it, like the the bulkiness factor that people are very afraid of, changing aesthetics. But we also look at like access and, you know, from a monetary perspective, like at, at that point where a lot of those younger performing artists have already started to specialize, like they're really not going to get exposure to a college or sorry, a high school weight room. You know, they're not if they're not if they're only doing dance, they're not going to be in that high school weight room. They're probably not going to see a weight room at all. Maybe they go do some cross training. Right. In air quotes at Planet, Planet Fitness, go do some running. But like you're you were basically like we've created this environment where those that oops, that sport culture has very, very minimal access or exposure to uh, resistance training. And their concept of resistance training just becomes, hey, let's do more plies with band around our knees at the end of, of uh, our practice or let's do some crunches. And so I think, like, while those things certainly can be part of resistance training and developing physical literacy and movement competency and all that stuff, I think what what we we end up having issues is like trying to actually get a load on some of these people. Well, and that's another conversation that comes up a lot is that there is this propensity just to stick towards body weight movements. But if you're really looking for like true physiological adaptation, there does need to be some external load. Um, the thing I say to parents all the time that tends to hit home pretty well is, you know, if your kid masters addition and we got to move on to kind of the next level, if we keep them at addition the whole time, they didn't really get any better at math. And you need to keep increasing that according to what they can adapt to. But in the same regard, like if you're adding and subtracting and I give you a calc test, it's probably not going to fare very well. So it is like taking the intermediary steps in order to get the kid where they need to go. But, you know, the analogy runs out even further when you're talking about like sports specialization. Like if I only had my kid go to school and take math classes, they're not going to be a very well-rounded academic. And, you know, math is a language, but it's probably not going to carry you over too far in terms of, like, being able to think through a lot of problems. And the same can be said for the performing arts or, you know, literally pick a sport. Like, there needs to be something else there. And all of the evidence would say that it is protective and, you know, it is called long-term athletic development for a reason. And at a certain point, we do kind of lose the moniker of whatever sport we identify with, and it tends to regress back to a more general, like, athlete. 
Like, you know, it, it is, you know, find me a 40 year old baseball player or a you know 40 year old dancer. And like the probability of a 17 year old still being that way when they're 40 is low, but I can find you a lot of 40 year old athletes. And it is creating that broader paradigm that can take you further into life. And it is hard to see because there is this emphasis on being the best right now. And I would be interested in the performing arts. I've I've never looked at this literature, but I know it doesn't hold nearly as well across other sports. Um, If the best kid at 16, or the best kid, let's make it more relevant to dance, if the best kid at 10 ends up being the best kid at 18 or 22. And across other sports, like that's not really the case a lot of the time. And if you look at some of the studies we have for like baseball and uh, female volleyball, the athletes that are the best in kind of the young middle school, early high school age end up not making it. And there's a higher rate of burnout. And they actually call it the Damoclean sword of success because, like, basically the better you are, the more reps you're going to get, the more exposures you're going to get, like, the more you're likely to be psychologically burned out. There's just a lot of, like, downstream effects that we're not really counting on by having someone peak too soon. Uh, I can speak to that. So I was pretty middle of the pack, I'll say, through elementary school, middle school. I wasn't that great, and my teachers will say the same thing. Um, Those dancers who were gifted is what we typically say they are the ones with the very high arched feet right very flexible feet crazy flexibility in the hips um and like a more skinny body type typically those are the dancers that we would say are gifted and those dancers do burn out a lot of the times i'd say probably 50 percent of the times those dancers do not make it onto the collegiate or professional level because they get overworked so much at the middle school and high school level, because they are the best and the teachers want to put them on the stage and put them out front and overwork them more than the dancers like myself, who are pretty middle of the pack, who we just kind of stayed steady. And then once we were able to explode out and really master our craft, we really blossomed. So I think it holds true, you know, but dancers also for, high-level companies will get chosen around 14, 15, and then they'll go into a pre-professional training company, like one that we have at Houston Ballet, and they'll train there. They will, they'll do homeschool. Um, they'll be at dance all day just like it's their job, and then they transition right into the second company, so like the step below the company, and then they'll transition right into the company. So those dancers make it. How much longer they make it once they're in the company is another story, but... They are like handpicked from a very young age to be the ones that they think are going to make it into the big leagues. So, Well, I think that's something that's kind of difficult for parents to accept sometimes and even the kids to accept um, is that, to put it blunt, your kid might not be as good as you think they are. And it's a hard conversation to have across all sports. But, you know, think about it like this. How many, like, we'll, we'll say 85th percentile dancers could have been 98th percentile soccer players if they'd only been exposed to the sport or, or figured out they were good at something else. And 
when you're starting to even talk about like dealing with injury and dealing with rehab, like this is where I really think having some fundamental athletic principles comes into play because, you know, if you ask the average 16 year old dancer to tell you about themselves, odds are in the first three things they're going to say is I'm a dancer. So if some type of injury comes that knocks that out for any significant period of time, like you just took a chunk out of that kid's identity. And, and, you know, the corollary is easy for me working at Barbell Medicine because I, I deal a lot with lifting athletes. And you have an athlete suffer an injury and they can't squat or bench or deadlift. And, like, you're like, dude, believe it or not, there are other exercises out there. <laughs> and it, it's hard for them to see because their identity is so tied to those three things. And, and that's part of kind of the conversation you end up getting into in the rehabilitation side a lot of times is like, yes, you are a dancer and, and I want you to continue to participate in the performing arts, but it would greatly behoove your overall development for you to get good at a few other things. And that, I think that identity piece is, I mean, we see it with everybody, right? Like lifters and runners and swimmers, I feel like are, are typically those like crazy uh, cases in rehab where you tell them like, okay, let's, let's back off on this particular thing. They're like, no, I can't do that. It's the same way with dance, but I think it becomes, it's like this, the culture of that sport, you know, that identity that you develop where it becomes so deeply rooted in who you are, any modification to that, you just instantly think it's some sort of attack or, or, um, you know, change in who you are as a person. Um, and it, it gets challenging. And I, I don't know. We talk a lot about like the identity of of a dancer, and one of the things that I feel like gets in the way is the thought that dancers are not athletes, right? That it's like a separate thing, even though some of the stuff that they do is some of the most incredible athletic stuff that I've ever seen in my entire life. But if you ask them, they're most of them would probably not identify as an athlete. Well, it's an interesting point, and something we actually discuss or I discuss a lot with my staff is what percentage of the kids are coming in now that would call themselves a soccer player or a baseball player or a dancer to that analogy, but they're not an athlete. And they've become so consumed with this small niche of their own development that they don't really have any broad athletic skills. And like, you know, to your point out of that, like I, I would consider, I certainly would consider dancers athletes, but you have to show me that you can do something athletic beyond just this very tight skill set. Yeah. I, I actually, I used one of your quotes. I think I probably butchered it. Um, last podcast we had with Christina, which is uh, you need a skilled dose of heavy work and a heavy dose of skilled work. Yep. Um, yeah. But sometimes in the, the dance world or performing arts world, we see this emphasis on purely just skill. Like the only way to get better at that skill is to just hammer that skill until you can't do it anymore. Which, you know, if we look at just about every other way you learn something, like that, that, that doesn't work very well. <laughs> and, you know, the more we get focused on this one solution to a problem, the harder it is to realize that a lot of the ways to get over it is by like working around the problem. And this is the discussion I have with a lot of athletes, like, do we need to work through this or work around it? And a lot of times, like, working through it, we can do it. Like, you're the lifting or the swimmer or the dancer, like, we can certainly work through it, but it's going to take our slope of recovery down. So if you want to work through it, that, that's cool. 
it's probably going to take us a little bit longer to get over this. And it is having those conversations regarding like prognosis. But the problem is to have those honest conversations, you really do have to have some trust with your athletes, especially in today's day and age where for every clinician being honest with the athlete, there are 15 promising some quick fix. And I think even looking at it from the coaching side of things, like if you're in a dance company where a coach is telling you that, that you're going to be the best three months from now and you haven't don't really have much of a dance history, like odds are somebody's lying. Like in we forget that there are no free lunches and a lot of these things do take some work and dedication, but it's not necessarily being so focused on this narrow thing. It, it is building a broader base out of it and playing the long game. But we tend to just be really bad at looking at the long game. And I wonder if part of the reason that dancers really get screwed up when they get injured is because dance is not only a physical activity, but it's also a way for them to express themselves emotionally. Like a lot of dancers, and I had the same issues, have trouble with public speaking as a kid or just expressing themselves to their family members or friends. So they use dance as an outlet of their you know, psychological issues that they might be have, like having during that time. And just when you lose that or the clinician tells you you can't do that anymore or like go play soccer or something that's different, they're like, well, I can't really express myself on the soccer field, right? Like that's not the same. So I think that's the point that most dancers would bring up if you told them that. And I think that's certainly a valid point, but this is somewhere when – I would say across sports that we run into some problems just even in how we're teaching because you're not giving kids a means with which to communicate and express themselves. And like one of the first questions you can ask any athlete I've had since I've been out here is what did you learn today? And like before I even ask them how they're feeling and if the answer is nothing, I'm like, well, we're going to learn about something today. Pick the topic. Like I refuse to have you leave my clinic and not have learned something that's just not happening. And like you get this to where, and I'm certainly going to walk a line here. So feel free to tell me to shut up if I'm overstepping in a little bit of my assumption. But like if the sport is predicated upon just doing what the instructor wants you to do, when does the kid really have a chance to reflect on who they are and how they feel about what they're doing? And, and I think that's part of why I sometimes have, or have issue in this isn't performing arts. Like you see, you certainly see this in baseball and volleyball to where it's like, this is the way you're going to do it. And there isn't that time to really reflect on the why they're doing it that way. Could there possibly be another way? And so there isn't that real time for expression because you're spending so much time trying to absorb everything that's getting thrown at you. Dead silence the podcast. <laughs> I think that's a great point, right? Because I said you do what the teacher says, but you still express yourself. I think once you have the mastery of the skill, you express yourself more. I think at the younger ages, you more are just focused on doing what the teacher says and making your relevé or making your pirouette look good. But I mean, once you reach the high school collegiate age, 
it really becomes like, I think more of a love and more of a sense of expression than it was when you were a kid. So I think you're right. I think you're totally right. You made me feel stupid for saying that, but it is definitely like emotional expression with dancers. Well, and it, it wasn't my intention at all to do that, but in the same token, like I, I really feel one of the things I've learned the most from moving into pediatrics is that we don't give kids enough time to just be kids, to like have conversations with them, let them reflect on what they're thinking, ask them what they want to do, what they want to learn about. And I think it's something that's really kind of holding a lot of kids back in their own development. And, you know, I've had conversations with post-collegiate athletes where it's interesting to where if you're a collegiate athlete, you're in like the 0.01% of society when it comes to athletic prowess. And if that's the case, you would think you would have some understanding of athletic training, but how many like college athletes finish being a college athlete and they're like, what the hell do I do now? I don't know how to train. I'm going to go keep doing the exact same thing I was doing. I don't know why I was doing it. So like how, how good are we as teachers if we're not really like even facilitating that understanding out of it? It's interesting. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of, cause we had, you had mentioned this before, like the way that a lot of things are structured, it's kind of based on how we learn. Like we get more and more, um, skill development, and we eventually get to the point where we can kind of start synthesizing things. But I wonder, like, where, where, uh, you know, where's that disconnect where you just you become like a, a robot and you're just on fast forward through everything, and you you aren't taking it in. Is it because we're not educating, like as clinicians or strength coaches, instructors? Um, is it does it fall like just on on that? Like, do we need to provide and build in more time for? like reflect reflection and expression within those particular sport, you know, development, or is it something where we need to, to do it more like at home or, or in school? Like what are your thoughts on that, Derek? Well, I mean, I think it comes across in every facet of life, but I, I think there is that meta conversation that has to go down. Like, why are we doing this? And too often that why gets attached to some, arbitrary extrapolation of some study that somebody read that calls to change six minutes after doing it. And all you're doing is churching up something that didn't really need churched up to begin with. Like, oh, I'm trying to increase your impulse and your Achilles tendon by having you focus on exploding off the ground. Or, you know, if you gave me a second, I can make that sound a lot more fancy. And you're talking over the athlete at that point. Like, and even if we take it into the rehab realm, like how many times do we give an explanation to an athlete and you just look at them and their eyes gloss over? Like they, they didn't take in anything you said. And there is that moment of like, and this is why I, I actually love resistance training. And as much as like my penchant is towards that type of training, but I think it naturally inspires some self-reflection. Like my favorite conversation with an athlete is when they rack a squat and they're like, do you think I should put some more weight on? Like, I don't know. Do you like, how did it feel to you? And you put it back on them and they have to start thinking about like where they're going to go with it. 
like I, I had a kid who came in and he was a chronic pain patient and we took him from a training bar to he actually went on and competed in a powerlifting competition and totaled like 1,050 pounds in his first meet. So not bad for a 17 year old with zero training history going into it. Um, but he would rack a squat all the time and just look at me and be like, do you think I should add some weight? I'm like, dude, you know what you're doing? That was my response every time. And he did, but he couldn't see it for himself yet. So, you know, it's one thing I can talk, you know, about tendon, bone and muscle adaptation all day long, according to like the way we're loading it. But like, if you don't think you can do it and like, it really is about facilitating that confidence in the athlete. And I think, I mean, I think we do a really poor job of that. Um, if you want my honest professional opinion on it, just because I think we're too busy sometimes in this, well, I need to cause a change in pick some variable in or vascular endothelial growth factor. Let's really make it sexy. So I need to decrease that in order <laughs> to get some tendon adaptation. And, you know, it's not that it's much more like how confident are you that you can perform the task? Are we loading you in the best way that you need to be loaded and are we working on your like long-term athletic development so you know if we look at a lot of stuff that comes in like even if you really think about it from like a behavior change side of things if you're coming into me for an overuse injury and we address it and you go back to doing the exact same thing like did i really do my job it's it's interesting that you bring up because uh, I feel like some of those points are things that we've like we've personally had conversations about stuff like that in in the past, but I think like when you look at just being a good, not even really like a good clinician, but just a good human being, right? Like being on the same level with that person that you're working with, and like experiencing, you know, what it is that you're you're doing, like living in the moment and kind of like taking all of that stuff in. I feel like that's like really critical because if we don't do that, we, we run the risk of creating this like weird, you know, hierarchical structure to treatment or to medicine where one person is just because of their title or their position ends up becoming like, you know, oh, I know everything because I'm, I'm a clinician or I'm a therapist. Like I'm going to tell you what to do. But I feel like a lot of times if we just shut up and listen to our patients that like we can get more out of that interaction and that half the time they know they know what they're doing but i think we kind of as you were kind of touching on like i feel like as a just medical professionals in general we've kind of created this hierarchy where everyone just expects us to know everything or we think that we know more than our patients do and then it leads to interactions like that where they're constantly looking at you to say like do i need to go up do i need to, you know when the answer may be within themselves the whole time. I feel like that, that was probably Apollo Coelho quote from the alchemist. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that resistance training is certainly a great way to, to foster that self-reflection. Um, and to maybe like to get, I think in sports in general, just like, um, I know that was one thing my wrestling coach always used to make, make us do is we'd have conversations with him. And, and it wasn't just when we come off the mat after a loss, him saying, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. It was, how did you feel about that? What did you learn from that experience? Um, and that was always something that resonated with me, like growing up in athletics was not just having someone tell me what I did wrong, but having someone help me realize like my own, you know, learning and growth from that experience by just asking a simple question. 
Sorry for my welcome to my TED talk. Thank you for coming. Um, no, that's. I, I think you raised a lot of phenomenal points there, and especially when you're talking about like the teenagers, like you know, it's a common trope that teenagers don't listen to their parents, and part of the goal is to get them to come to that conclusion on their own. So, like, why would we be any different? Why shouldn't we be trying to facilitate them coming to their own end game just as much as me talking at them the whole time? And that's really what it comes down to. Like, yeah, I think it would be interesting if, you know, you told the story about your wrestling coach. Like, you go around and you think about those, like, impactful conversations you had with a coach. And these were people, and I think if you ask a lot of athletes to really reflect on this, it's going to be someone they thought genuinely cared about them. And I think that is missing sometimes when we just – try and fix somebody instead of helping them fix themselves is like completely esoteric as that sounds. But it's, I think one of the best things that ever happened to me, and it probably explains even some about my personality now is when I was in high school, the first time I ever cracked two minutes in 800, I thought I was like the biggest guy around, believe it or not, I was an 800 runner at six, three, two forty five. I know that's a little hard to fathom these days. Uh, <laughs> But I walked up to my coach and definitely had that like high school strut going on. And his first response wasn't congratulations. It was, you might want to go look at the times down in Florida because in rural West Virginia, I was, you know, crushing it, but you put me in with the Florida, Texas or California guys, and I wouldn't even make it out of qualifiers. And the whole lesson out of that was like the perspective that went with it. And I think, you know, things like that have carried a long way to where, you look at it and you're like, well, there's probably somebody better than me at this and I need to figure out where they are and figure out what steps they needed to take to get there. And a lot of times it's, it was never a linear path. Like, you know, Jake, when you and I first met, there were a lot of conversations about like, how do you learn all this stuff? And it's not by sitting there and just like crushing 10 research articles a day. Like, I think this week, um, I've maybe read six articles, but I've probably read close to 450 pages in like four books, that five books that have nothing to do with anything physical therapy, or they do because I'm going to pull things from it. But as far as like if you looked at the Venn diagram overlap, nobody would ever look at um, Becoming Human and say like, oh, that's a PT book. Well, I mean, it that right there, Derek, goes back to the whole discussion of like physical literacy. I mean, obviously you're talking about actual literacy. Right. But just building a whether it's from a physical standpoint or from a, you know, like a not to be super reductionist and break us down into like body and mind. But, you know, from a mental standpoint as well, like being exposed to different things and whether that's consuming like stories and like uh, fictional things like in a book form, whether it's watching movies, whether it's like comic books, just having some sort of like other realm of thought and you know exposure to different ideas and things because we've had that conversation about grendels and grails right isn't that the mm -hmm. frank article yeah um, where you know like stories are incredibly critical to how we learn as human beings and so like being able to pull on other things it's not just what you you know do every day for a living um being, being exposed to like a wide variety of information and things that you can learn from a teaching perspective is super critical. Cause like, I mean, like that's the whole reason I watched game of Thrones was so I could talk to my patients about it. You know, every, every Monday, like, Oh my God, did you see that this week's episode? 
I feel like there's a lot of a lot to be said, not just in um, <clears throat> like you know reading and, and and learning outside of your field, but the fact that that in in a sense is doing the same thing that we're talking about from a physical physical literacy standpoint. That it's just giving you more exposure, more information, more perspectives, and ways that you can look at a problem and and kind of work around it. Yeah, I would love to tie this back to what Derek was saying about the track runner in Florida, because I think a lot of young performers are comparing themselves to other artists who are out there via social media. And I think in some cases it's making them perform perform worse or get out of the sport earlier because they see these dancers or musicians, whatever, who is the same age as them, but they're performing at a higher level. And then they you know, take it harshly on themselves and they end up pulling out of the sport that they loved. And I think talking about a healthy dose of competition is important, but it can also ruin an athlete's career. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think that's a phenomenal point. And, you know, to, to my story, I was a cocky idiot. And I know that my coach, if I were mopey zoo lion around, like would have approached that a different way. And, but I, I do think that is a, a very important point. And it's something like it's funny because I think it's taken me 38 years to really appreciate it just because, like, my natural predisposition is a little bit more towards the headstrong. But now that I am uh, knocking on the master's athlete door, it, it's funny because I, like, in the grand scheme of humanity, I'm in, like, the 99th percentile for strength. But among my cohort of friends, I'm in like the 40th percentile. And like you, you look at that and it really is that perspective around you. And you can look at that as, you know, well, what's the point of keeping trying? Or you can say like, well, I can still do things that hardly anybody else in humanity can do. And it is still having that kind of reflective conversation out of it. And I think even tying that back into the youth side of things, it, it is – letting them reflect on all the stuff they can accomplish. And it's another reason like to keep circling back to my penchant for resistance training. Like it's very easy to show progress. If you came in and the first day we did a goblet squat with 25 pounds and eight weeks later, you're squatting 95 pounds. Like, dude, we, we made gains. Like there's a lot of Z's on the end of gains right there. Like, and it's very easy to draw back into that reflection of like, look at the progress you've made. And like my normal criteria for giving exercise is how easy is it to teach? How easy is it to scale? And how stupid do you look doing it? And I really try and not violate number three unless I have to. <laughs> um, just because if I'm trying to teach you an exercise, like, I mean, let's face it. We've all been in the gym and looked over and been like, oh, PT definitely taught them that. And because it looks just absolutely idiotic. <laughs> and like in is in if I'm gonna teach these exercises to kids, like I'm not gonna have them do something that I would be embarrassed to go do in a gym. But you know, it, if if I had I had a seventeen year old, probably six months stats post ACL, probably hundred and thirty-five pound girl take 185 for five and she had no barbell training coming into surgery i guarantee you when that girl walks into the gym and does a beautiful 185 squat for five sets of five next to the dude who's chicken leg in 135 like that's impressive 
So we built some confidence into the system as well. And it really is about like building that perspective out of it. And, you know, I, even then, and I feel like we haven't explicitly touched on this, so I'll say it, you're not going to get bulky lifting weights. Everyone forgets that weightlifting is a weight class sport. So if you just got bigger, you would just move up weight classes your entire career. And, and that's not the case. It's just like most of the stuff that we like to watch are the people that can really sling heavy weight, and those tend to be the big people. And But if you look at it like strongest pound for pound, like those tend to be some of your lightest weight classes. And, and you know, those people are training and doing things that no other human around can do with somehow managing managing to not get bigger. And, and it still is that kind of like nutrition and sleep stuff. We went back out to it. Like, yeah, if you're squatting every day and going to a buffet afterwards, might put on a pound or two, but that's not the squats. That's you're running a caloric surplus. And especially when we're talking about the dance community, like there is a high propensity for, you know, relative or relative energy deficiency syndrome. Like there's no amount of resistance training I'm going to throw at that person that's going to put any weight on them. In fact, I'm probably in this even gets at kind of a, a little bit of a meta conversation of these discussions need to be had regarding uh, red S syndrome relatively early, because if you are increasing the load on someone who's already operating in a big time deficit, like you may be doing the thing the literature says to the T you should be doing in order to cause the physiological adaptation. But if they're running a severe deficit out of it, you're still just adding extra stress into a system that is already overly stressed. Derek, I've been joking about this for a while, but one of the things I want our tagline to be is no more tiny dancers. <laughs> but I think then it's saying that if you lift, you're not going to be tiny, right? Like dancers want to be tiny. So I, I don't think we well, want to see no more tiny dancers. No, I, I just think the pun is absolutely beautiful. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, that's that's absolutely phenomenal. Out of it, but I, I think Danielle, you your point is well received, and it certainly should not be your tagline. But I think it's hilarious to throw that joke out there. Um, but um, Danielle, who's the ballerina right now that's getting the uh, attention because she got the ad from Under Armour for blend. So, but you look at it, and it really is. It takes people like her to come in and like break the mold of the ideals. And I think sometimes people need to see that you don't have to fit this like very tight mold of what we consider to be right. Like people can do things regardless of it. And it's not until somebody comes in, it's like in, in baseball, the easy person to talk about is Tim Lincecum. When he came in with his weird throwing mechanics, everybody's like, what is this? And he had a pretty decent career doing it a way no one else has ever done it. But it, like, it takes a little while and it takes some effort for someone to come out and be the face of doing it a different way. People have said, you know, Misty is beautiful and I idolize her, but she's really not that big. Like if you saw her on the street, you would still probably think she's a dancer. Like she's the size of a dancer. She just has a little <laughs> bit more bulk in like the gluteal and like deltoid area, which makes her look curvier than an average ballerina. Um, 
But yeah, I, I think the dance world is progressing. The ballet world is progressing. But I agree with you that it's going to it's gonna take time and it's going to take dancers performing some weight training and seeing that they're not going to get bulky for them to really buy in, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, like, I worked with the gymnastics team at the University of Florida, and it was always funny to see them because if you look at the pictures of them performing, they always look just yoked. And then they come in and, like, if you didn't know them, they look like just very tiny humans. And it's just the fact that like when they're expressing themselves through their athleticism, like, yeah, I mean, I look a little bit different picking up 600 pounds than I do just walking around. And we forget that there is like the normal side and like the, while you're doing the task at hand. To kind of go back to like, I guess a discussion that we kind of touched on a lot between like resistance training, identity, you know, self-discovery. Um, I think I've shared this story with Danielle before, but one of my favorite things to do in the clinic is when I'm working with like a 10 year old dancer to have them deadlift a kettlebell and like not tell them what it weighs, but just eventually work up usually to about hundred pounds and then ask them, you know, like, how was that? Was it hard? Like how much do you think it weighs? And usually they're like, Oh, I don't know, 40 pounds. And when they see that number of like 100 on the kettlebell, they're just like, oh, my God, I'm I'm strong. And they have this like realization that they're capable of so much more stuff. And that's one of the things that I really like personally about using resistance training. Is it that objective measure of progress that you can see and that self-discovery and self-reflection that it can kind of like lead to? That's one of my favorite things is just seeing like a 10-year-old girl pick the crush 100-pound deadlift for reps. And then they're like, oh, my God, Mom, did you see how much I picked up? You know, like, I, I live for those days. It's it's funny you say that because a lot of my athletes, I'm pretty sure, couldn't tell you how much our kettlebells weigh. They only know them as blue, yellow, red, just because I never take the time to tell them how much weight they're using. But in the same token, I typically make a preconcerted effort early on to only use the black bumper plates when teaching barbell lifts just because you can't delineate. And then once they start realizing they're getting strong, we have comp plates. And like you start being like, oh, yeah, let's work up to the red plate now. Like I have a kid who had uh, osteosarcoma of his calcaneus and ended up having an endoprosthesis put in. And he squatted right before the quarantine happened. He squatted, I think, 185 for five with his like, you know, calcaneal endoprosthesis. And I can tell you there was nothing more awesome than putting the red wheels on for the first time and just letting him see that, like, he could do that. He's like, dude, you're squatting the biggest plate we have in here now. He's like, well, let's keep going. Let's add five pounds. Yeah, that's that. I I love that feeling, and I think it's it's so easy to have with like the youth population because you know, like we talked about, I feel like a lot of this stuff isn't always at the forefront of what we're doing from an athletic development perspective, and so like providing some of these avenues where you can get into resistance training or you can facilitate physical literacy in a different way and just show them like, hey, you are capable of so much more. I think from an identity perspective and like. You know, just all of that stuff is just so critical to helping foster like continued development and like long term athletic development. It still goes back to that, like finding that entry point. And, you know, what you were talking about with the performing arts, like there is a pretty hierarchical progression according to the skills you develop. And the same can be said for the resistance training side of it. I think just the public perception a lot of times is that we start heavier than we should. And like, you're still going to learn the same technique. And, you know, 
I think the other part about it is, is there is this dichotomy conversation that comes out a lot of like technique versus just throwing weight on the bar. And, you know, if you talk to anyone who's been lifting for any amount of years, they still have technique stuff built into the program every week. It's working towards mastery. You're never going to be that beautiful of a technician out of it. Like no one ever has an RPE 10 that looks textbook perfect in technique. That's why we don't go that high that often. But, you know, the longer we can spend down at those lower levels and build up some capacity, the easier it is to really, like, express that increased athleticism we've developed. Yeah, and I know Jake and I have talked about this, how we would implement it for a dance studio, because we're not going to bring a squat rack into a dance studio, because that would terrify everyone, right? And, like, so maybe kettlebells or something like that would be an easier way to get them to buy in. If they're not injured, right, if we're on the upside and they haven't become injured yet and they're not coming into our clinic how could we safely get them using some type of weight you know without scaring them well i think this is where physical therapists especially are uniquely positioned to really take this approach because odds are we are going to have an opportunity where a kid is going to come in where they are hurt and if they see they can do it they go back and tell their friends hey, like, look at this thing I can do now. And a lot of times if we just kind of walk in and we're like, here's this thing you should all be doing. Like, they don't know us from Adam, so they're not going to listen to us. But, you know, if it's something that they, especially during a time of adversity to them, that they had some success with, like, then odds are, like, you're, it's an easier entry point in. And I certainly don't think we need to be, you know, throwing racks in every dance studio. But even if you are getting some proficiency in a kettlebell goblet squat or a hinge, you're getting some external load. Like going from zero to something, you have infinitesimally increased the amount of external load in the system. My dance studio would have multiple squat racks. Just, I know we've talked about this before, but yeah, I would, I would have that at the forefront of it. It would probably scare everyone. Um, but if I were to build my dream dance studio, cause I know nothing about dance, I would, I would have a squat rack in there. I know a couple things. I, I downplay it. I downplay it. But yeah, I, I think, I think the kettlebells are like a really great novel way, especially with that population. Cause most of them are just going to do banded exercises and bridges and clamshells. I don't know that that's the most optimal thing. If we're trying to improve jump height and like strength and power production, speed, those types of variables. I don't know that our traditional, you know, post-class dancer conditioning is going to be really effective. Yeah, and even if you look at the evidence, really, like, to your point, if you want to increase someone's vertical, strength training is a very adequate way of doing that. It has decent effect sizes for doing that. Um, a lot of the things that really get expressed in terms of, like, explosivity that you see in a lot of dance would benefit from a broader strength base out of it. And it's not that an athlete needs a two times body weight back squat, but like starting somewhere and doing something is the imperative step along the way. Now we, Danielle and I have kind of talked about this before, but I'm curious to have your take on this. There are certainly very different like styles of dance and Mm -hmm. more often than not someone who, who is dancing at a young age will take multiple classes in different disciplines. Um, Would you consider that to be like, 
enough of a difference stylistically to be like a separate sport or to help develop more movement literacy or do you think it's too similar um to each other i would probably consider it better than nothing but it, it certainly wouldn't be ideal just because if you look at the things that kind of constitute physical literacy, it, it is, you know, the ability to kick, the ability to throw something, uh, you know, there, and these are things that just aren't elements of a lot of typical. And when I say kick, I don't mean as far as like a dance kick that's part of a move. I mean being able to like to strike something that's coming at you, and whether it be another human in the form of a martial art or a ball. But, you know, having those basic coordination skills developed to where you're interacting with your environment versus you being the main mode of expression. Now, are there any specific recommendations that you have for parents of, of athletes that you're working with as far as uh, recommendation recommendations or ways to improve physical literacy? Well, and this kind of gets into a, a broad conversation that would probably be an entire other time into itself, just because there isn't a right answer. And the first question that always comes out of this when a parent approaches me with it is to turn to the kid and say, what is it you would like to do? Once again, my pension is going to be for resistance training. But if you're a dancer and you have some interest in soccer, go play soccer. Like it doesn't have to be anything specific. It just needs to be far enough out. Now, the one caveat I'll throw into this is if you're a swimmer, don't tell me it's running. Like it, it needs to be something that has some load or some change of direction in it. And that is the more imperative thing. And what we'll see out here a lot, and I think once again, we get into this kind of like meta conversation about at what point are you really a dancer? It is someone who takes dance class two times a week and does nothing else a dancer? And well, so Danielle shook her head for the audience, but uh, <laughs> which my rebuttal question would be, do you think if I asked that kid if she was a dancer, she would say no? I mean, it depends on what age they are, but I, I agree. There's like recreational dancers and then what we would say are dancers, right? Yeah. And those both have different demands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so Jake, kind of to your point, um, the biggest thing is just talking to parents about meeting physical activity guidelines. Like if your kid is participating in sport for an hour or twice a week, they are phenomenally sub-threshold for what current physical activity guidelines are. So if that's the case, it, there isn't a specific exercise they need to be doing, but they need to be out and active a minimum of an hour a day. And that, and, and this is one of those things like, going back to the academic thing, like do you wanna do the minimum to get better or do you wanna go a little bit beyond that? And having the conversation with the parents of like, your kid needs to be outside playing. They need to be doing some different games. If they wanna learn how to resistance train, I'll happily teach them how to do that. But the biggest thing is they're consistent in getting daily moderate level physical activity and that they're doing something they enjoy. And too often, I think even the second point out of that gets lost in that there tends to be this inflection point across all sports domains to where for a large cohort of the kids, it's no longer fun because the parents have kind of a sunk cost fallacy going into it of I've invested all this time and money into turning you into pick said sport. And if it's not fun for the kid, then go do something else. It makes you wonder, like, at that point, do they really love the sport or do they love it because they're told to love it? 
because they've just done it for so long. Like it's certainly part of their identity, but are they really identifying as a soccer player at that point? Or is it just someone who plays soccer? Well, and even if you think about like from strict social structures, like one of the best things that happened at school was when we went from one season to the other because you basically got an entirely new group of friends. And like it, it created a much more broad and diverse set of individuals that you were interacting with, which let's face it, tends to be healthy for our overall maturational development. And, you know, if you only hang out with the same six kids every day, like your perspective is going to be pretty tight window. Yeah. And I think a lot of dancers will only be friends with dancers and that only perpetuates the issue more. If all their friends are only dancing, no one's playing soccer, you know, it makes it harder. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like I was a collegiate rower and we have practice in the morning and in the evenings. All you were hanging out with was rowers because you didn't see anybody else. And, you know, luckily, rowing rosters tend to be 80 athletes, so you have plenty of people to choose from. But, like, if the smaller it gets, like, there needs to be some other perspectives and other interactions going on there. It's interesting because I feel like everything comes back to you need more exposure to more things. Like, if we were to distill everything down, like, we need to improve our overall, like, human literacy, whether it's like from a physical standpoint, whether it's from like reading or like having a larger base of interactions with other human beings. Like we just need to not be so narrow minded and, and like tunneled in our approach to stuff. We need to have broader exposure to pretty much everything. Well, and, you know, if you think about it, like a lot of this comes down to being more relatable. And you know, before we started the podcast, we were having a conversation, Daniel, it's the first time I've ever met you. Like one of the first things that I went for, we started discussing was what you and I have in common. And like having that commonality tends to make it easier to connect across a, a broader spectrum of things. And, you know, the more you kind of like paint yourself into the corner by only being good at this one really small niche in things, like the more if that niche gets taken away or gets subtracted even further, like the harder it is for you to identify across a broader spectrum. I think all the points that you made were awesome. And I learned a bunch. So I hope everyone listening learned a bunch too. Um, I think it's going to take time for us to be able to do all the things that we're saying. And I wish it was, I wish it was easier and that we were able to really teach these kids what we want them to know. But you know, there's a large learning curve that has to happen. So, yeah, but you can, by just by our interactions, like even if at the end of the day, it's just the two of us that are impacted by like this conversation that we had, we're going to be better at like thinking about those things, thinking about like an entry point for discussions about like nutrition, sleep, uh, you know, physical literacy. Right. So like that one change can have a massive ripple effect. So like even of our like two listeners that we have, you know, that's like infinitely more than previously. And that's the goal is just to try to make some small changes and, and have a larger conversation, because I think especially in this, you know, the community of performing arts, like these are things that you don't talk about as much as you should. We talk about it a lot in like every other field sport or barbell sports, but we just don't talk about it in, in the performing arts as much as we should. So... Well, and I think it's awesome what you guys are doing, even like getting someone in the performing arts background, someone in the resistance training, because that Venn diagram tends to be uh, 
not as overlapping as would be ideal. So even just getting the conversation out there, I think, is a very important step in the right direction. Yeah, that's why I wear my tutu. People, people want more tutu content, so they do just, want all the tutu content. Just trying, just trying to bring it to them. <laughs> all right, Derek, we're gonna go. We're gonna do some rapid fire questions for you. All right, shoot. All right. First, I know you're a food guy. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite cooking with adhesions meal that you have made? And maybe we should oh. introduce people to cooking with adhesions first. So. Cooking with adhesions is something that uh, my wife hates. Um, it started as a conversation related to the lack of structural change with any type of manual therapy on tissue. And it uh, it's kind of blossomed into my own cynicism really coming full steam. And cooking with adhesions essentially is whatever I'm cooking for the week, talking about how I can't pull the fascia off, even being able to access it with my hands immediately. Um, no matter how much I rub a butter knife on it, I can't knock it off. Occasionally I have some unicorn toothpicks if I need to, you know, dry needle some trigger points before I start my brazing techniques. So, uh, the best one, actually, uh, I, I have to give full props to Natasha Barnes for inspiring this. Uh, she told me I should do muscle energy techniques. And I cooked a uh, Spanish-style muscle broth, and the jokes, like, wrote themselves on that one. Like, I, there's just so many different ways you can go, especially considering, like, what you're actually doing with the muscles by steaming them is getting them to open up. So when you're talking about, like, all the manual therapy, polysyllabic uh, vernacular that goes along with that, like, it's it's low-hanging fruit. Plus, that was honestly one of the better things I've cooked in the last year. So uh, I always I always ask food questions, so I'm I'm glad that we could we could bring that up. Now you got I think I saw on Instagram. Are you doing short ribs today? Yeah, I have some short ribs curing right now. Mm-hmm. So it's uh I'm I've gotten way into like my cooking background is much more like southwestern style and how I learned. But after being out here for a few years. Um, I have a coworker who is very culinary inclined and she's introduced me to a lot of Asian styles of cooking. And so today I'm doing a miso pear kiwi braised short rib. So we'll see how it turns out. Talk about polysyllabic uh, things. All right, Derek. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on today. Uh, it was, I always love having conversations with you. You always like melt my frontal lobe to some extent. And so I don't know if you can see my CSF leaking on my table, but um, I'm going to have to fix that a little bit. So if anyone wants to get in contact with you, Derek, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, You can email me. I'm Derek at barbellmedicine.com or on the gram. I am uh, Derek underscore barbellmedicine. We will make sure that we have those in our show notes. And Danielle, if people want to talk to you. What's what's the my uh, handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle Anise underscore DPT, but it's really my middle name. So, yeah. Yeah, she is. She is a nice physical therapist. So it's it's fitting. Uh, And then you can find me on my low quality meme page at TMD underscore the movement docs. Um, Thanks again, Derek. We really enjoyed having you on. If anybody listening has questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or a topic that you want to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. 
Thanks again, guys. We will see you next week. And as always, remember, don't break a leg.